Jay, you just muted. I'm just going to, I'm unmuting you. you. You there now? I'm here. Perfect. Have you heard anything at all that I've said? Nothing. Okay. Good evening, friends. My name is Jay and I'm an alcoholic. I'm a grateful member of the Clarewood Group in Devon, South Africa. I want to thank PAX and this group for giving me the privilege to share a bit of my life with you tonight. I also want to thank all my dear friends from South Africa that have stayed up tonight to join me on this meeting. Thank you guys for your support and your strength. <clears throat> As I've said, my name is Jay and I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is the 18th of January, 2006. But I joined Alcoholics Anonymous before that. <clears throat> I joined Alcoholics Anonymous in 1993 as a young 29-year-old. But I came in then for the wrong reasons. I was the father of a three-month-old baby boy, and I got an ultimatum from my wife that I either did something about my drinking or she would take the little boy and bugger off and I'd never see him again. The alternative was get sober and Alcoholics Anonymous and we can build our family again. Kicking and screaming, I came into Alcoholics Anonymous because I wanted to be with my son. And when I got into Alcoholics Anonymous in 1993, <clears throat> there was just one other youngster in the group and he's on this meeting tonight, my friend Pavin. And I was still a bit smart then. And after three months of being in Alcoholics Anonymous, I made my own deductions about this thing. I said, well, if they rely on the big book for this process of staying sober, I have two university degrees. I'm a lawyer. I can read. I can write. Instead of making these meetings every day and taking out two hours of my life, I can sit at home and read this book and I'll, I'll stay sober. I can get this thing done. So after three months, I didn't make any meetings at all. There was an odd meeting in the rally that <clears throat> I would attend if somebody that I knew at, at Alcoholics Anonymous would just press the wrong buttons and make me go. The strangest thing is that the day before my one-year anniversary, I was still sober. But it didn't didn't mean anything to me that I was sober. I was going to be sober for a year. And one of the old gentlemen that had taken me to my first AA meeting made the, made the telephone call to me. He cared enough to make the telephone call to me to remind me that the next day I was going to be a full year sober. Now he had taken the time out to write it in a book and to remember the date, but I hadn't. I hadn't written it down anywhere, I didn't remember it. So although I hadn't taken a drink in 12 months, today I realized that I wasn't sober. I just didn't drink for 12 months. And I had already relocated from where I was living when I made my first AA meeting. And the old gentleman had said to me, there's a group not far from where you live. I'll make the arrangements. You can go to that meeting and, and mark your one year anniversary. 
that's all oh, yeah i'll go fine it's a big deal i'll go so i stop at a, a little bakery and i get a little cake i was told that that's how your anniversary is is marked you take a cake and you blow a candle just like a birthday <clears throat> so i did that so now i get to this this group in clearwood and uh, everybody's happy for me because my sponsor or I can't call him my sponsor because I, I never really did anything for him. Had phoned the group secretary and said that this youngster was going to be coming to uh, mark his anniversary. So I take this cake that I brought in and I plunk it up the, on the table and I go sit right at the back. I didn't greet anybody. There was a lot of love. I when when I, I reflect back on the day, there was a lot of love for a lot of everybody that was there. Was rather happy for me that uh, I'd stayed a whole year sober. It was, it was apparently a big deal, but didn't make much difference to me. And my, my one-year anniversary was announced and I was asked to come blow out the candle. So I got to the front, I blew out the candle. They asked me if I'd like to say anything and I said no. I went back and I took my chair. And I think the minute the serenity prayer was finished, I was out the door like a bat from hell, never to go back to AA again for another nine years. But what had happened to me was that those 12 promises that you told me about in those early days when I came in in 1993, those things miraculously worked for me, even though I didn't deserve them then. Um, I'd, I had studied at university to, to, to become a lawyer and I progressed from working in the government service to starting my own practice. It was a very successful practice. As they tell us in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, more money, more booze, more ego, more trouble. <clears throat> I didn't realize it then. I didn't realize that I was taking this path. I was sober. I continued to study and I, I qualified as a barrister. And uh, things just started to happen for me. Cars got bigger, the houses got more fancy. And I started to develop a massive ego because in, in the neighborhood from which I, I had grown up and that I was living in, I'd become something of a, of a celebrity. Everybody wanted to be my friend. Everybody wanted to talk to me. And I just lapped it up. And I, I, I grew to 10 feet tall before I'd even known that I'd outgrown my shoes. And the strange thing is, in spite of all of that, I managed to stay without a drink for nine years and seven months. And nine years and seven months down the line, at the end of one of those big cases that I'd done, I was again a celebrity. And the family that I had represented in the trial that I was doing had invited me to lunch uh, to celebrate because their son would be didn't get life imprisonment. And when I was first offered a drink, I said no. On the second occasion, I just said no. But on the third time that I was offered a drink, I had by then become the bee's knees in this little gathering. And so what the hell? I might as well. Everybody else is celebrating for something that I had done. I might as well celebrate too. And I had a few drinks. 
And that was after nine years and seven months without a drink. It made absolutely no difference to me. The nine years and seven months that I'd not had a drink at that moment meant absolutely nothing to me. I had stopped reading the big book after my first three months. I had never identified myself as an alcoholic. I would find any reason under the sun to refuse a drink, but never ever have the courage and the humility to say to somebody, I can't have a drink with you because I'm an alcoholic. Nine years and seven months down the line, I picked up that horrid first drink. And I got home that evening and my wife had known that I had had something to drink. And she said the most surprising thing to me. It was only a matter of time before it happened. But I hope when you wake up tomorrow morning, you'll realize the magnitude of your stupidity. Even then, it made absolutely no difference to me. But I woke up the next morning, <clears throat> still feeling 10 feet tall. All I could talk about was the case that I just won. The fact that I picked up a drink after nine years and seven months of abstinence still didn't strike me. Because I hadn't been in, in AA meetings, I hadn't read the big book, I haven't kept in touch with the literature. The stinking thinking had set in a long time ago. Because had I been in touch with Alcoholics Anonymous and had I been in touch with my literature and had I embraced this program, I would have realized that we drink one day at a time and we get sober one day at a time. I would have been able to say to myself the next morning, well, I've slipped up. I've got to start again. It's just one day at a time. I'm only sober for a day at a time. So I can start again today. But no, the stinking thinking said to me, you've crossed the Rubicon. Now you've just got to make sure that you don't go back to where you were. In retrospect, you taught me that if I ever had to go back, I don't start from scratch again. I start from my worst day and things just get worse after that. I hadn't made that realization. By then I was 41 years old. And for the first three months, I drank only beer and I drank the beers on the weekend. And that was 5% alcohol or, or 2.5% alcohol. <clears throat> Within six months, I was drinking during the week, but I was still on beer. But not the 2.5% ones. I went to the stronger ones because I wasn't getting the effect. Within a year, I'd started drinking my old poison, which was whiskey. Within two years, my friends, I was a worse alcoholic than I was at the age of 29. Because by the, by the time it had got to July 2005, I needed to have a drink every three hours of the day, just so that I could be normal, just so that I could do the normal things that a human being does. I had to create for myself an abnormal situation just to be normal. And by the time I got my, myself to an AA meeting in July of 2005, I was going into those meetings drunk. And the only reason I went to those meetings is because I reached the stage of desperation. Desperation to the extent that on my way to my chambers in the morning, I would stop 
at the bottle store. And it got to such a, to such a state that the owner of the liquor store knew exactly what I was there for. And he would have it ready because I was there like clockwork at seven o'clock in the morning to pick up my, my morning fix, which was a, a quarter bottle of, of whiskey and two cold beers. And I drink that before I got to my chambers to start my day. But by the time I got to the point in August of, of 2005, it had got so bad that I needed to have a drink at five o'clock in the morning, just so that I could keep my hands sober enough to brush my uh, steady enough to brush my teeth and to shave. Because I'd wake up in the morning shivering and shaking. And unless I had that drink in the morning, I was not able to do the normal natural things that human beings do. But I was still full of myself. I still could not bring myself to come back to you guys and say, you kept me away from this stuff once before. Can you please help me? I still wouldn't do it. I'd go to these AA meetings and I would go down on my knees and I would say to God, why can't you make me like those other people? But I still wanted to do it on my terms. I would still get drunk and be the center of attention or make myself the center of attention. I'd walk into other people's conversations and tell them that they didn't know what they were talking about. I'd impose my, my will and my opinions on, on just about anybody. I'd walk into a, a, a conversation that total strangers were having, people I didn't know and who didn't know me. I wanted to tell them how important I was and regale them with, with fancy tales and make myself look even bigger than I was. I had absolutely no respect for my spouse. My spouse is a, is a highly educated um, individual. She's an educator and I just realized this week when I was doing a step four and, and going over my life that I'd only become a barrister because she had paid for my studies. Um, she had made the sacrifice and sacrificed a whole lot of things for herself to be able to pay those fees for me in the early days when I took all my exams to qualify as a barrister. But until I got sober again in 2006, I never acknowledged it. In fact, right up until a few days ago when I did this, the step four inventory of my, my early days, I hadn't yet and we'd been married for 33 years. And I had never once said thank you to her for the sacrifices that she made so that I could be a big shot barrister. I never valued her opinions. I, I, I thought that from an intellectual perspective, she was beneath me. And, and barristers don't talk to, to educators. They, we talk down to them. We tell them what to do. And I'd become that person that measured my, my worth in terms of my, my material wealth. And it was always a question of wanting more and wanting more and wanting more. I'd set goals for myself and when I achieved them, I was the business. Everybody needed to know about it. If I bought a new car, the whole world needed to know how much I paid for it. <clears throat> and 
where my my partner was concerned, we, we had one of those relationships where she would try. She would try to express her, her point of view. And then I'd, I, I'd become all uppity and, and arrogant. And she would just give up on it. It's not worth pursuing anymore. And I, I would take this as, as a sign of weakness in her and a sign of strength in me. But I was in control. I was the man. Nobody went against me. And it gradually got to a stage where we seldom, if ever, spoke about anything of substance. And I was sober this time. I was sober during this time. I was an absolute horror to live with. But sadly, I only realized that when I made my second entry into Alcoholics Anonymous and started taking an inventory of myself. My children loved me, but today I, I wonder whether they loved me out of the duty or whether they truly loved me. They still try to convince me today that they always truly loved me, but I don't think so. Um, I, I think that their real love for me only, only took shape after I, I got sober the second time around. Before that, I think it was just a duty that as children, they were supposed to love their dads. And I put my son through a through a lot of trauma. The day I got sober was the day on which he started his first day at high school. And I was on the sports field with him when he'd gone to try out for the cricket team. And I'd taken him there early in the morning and I was going to be bored, so I bought a six-pack and I sat on the bench and, and I set into that six-pack. That wasn't enough, and I got a second six-pack. And by the time I was on the ninth beer, my son didn't have a ball in his hand, he didn't have a bat in his hand, but his lunatic father, drunk as a skunk, was shouting his name as if he was the star of the show, and he wasn't even on the field. And we got home that evening, and he said to his mom, he says, I don't think I can go to that school. We'll have to give up that scholarship because dad embarrassed me so badly that I don't think I'm going to be able to face those kids again. But typical alcoholic, I felt sorry for myself. So all I was doing was enjoying myself and this kid couldn't understand. And yet I get him into a good school and I'm giving him this and I'm giving him that and giving him the whole world that he should be so grateful for. And I just left that morning. <clears throat> His mom took him to school. And I went on a, another, another one of my benders. And it was the 17th of January, 2006. At around one o'clock in the afternoon, I came to my senses and I found myself in a strange dwelling with strange people around me. And a typical alcoholic, I look out the window to see where my car is and whether my car is in a decent condition. And when I turned my head, I saw that there was a half empty bottle of whiskey on the bedside table. I didn't know where I was. But I took a, a healthy swig of that, a little cigarette, and it suddenly dawned on me that I didn't like myself. It dawned on me that I'd become such a horrible human being that even I didn't like myself, that I actually hated myself. But again, 
typical alcoholic with no with no foundation, no program, no big book, no nothing. I start feeling sorry for myself and I say that my family would probably be better off without me. They benefit from the insurance policies that are taken out for them and they'll be able to live a decent life. So I drive my car to the bay in Durban and I write this letter to my partner that I, I was going to pin on to the steering wheel for her to read and then drive my car into the bed. Now that's the insanity of an alcoholic. How was she ever going to get this letter? But I want to tell you what was in the letter because I, I, I read the letter later on. And the letter was all about me. It was just about I, 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 I. And I think that I'm doing you a favor by dying because I think that you're going to have a better life with me. And I think I've had enough of this life. And I think and I do and I... And I didn't bother about it at that time. But by the grace of God, it was not my time to die. Because God still had space for me in his heart. And he still had a measure of grace for me. Some years back, I had taken my, my mom's elder brother into a rehabilitation facility. I can't say now that he was an alcoholic because he came into the program. Sadly, when he came in too late. But I'd taken him into this rehabilitation facility <clears throat> and booked him in. And then I got a call about two days later from the person in charge of the rehabilitation facility who said to me, please, can you come and fetch this gentleman and take him back home? Because he's too far gone and he's going to die any day now. At least let him have the honor of dying in his own home. So I went back there and I fetched him. And as I took him out of the, the car to carry him into our home, he began spewing blood all over me. And I knew then that he was in his last moments. And I carried him into his home and I left him on his bed. And as I still had him in his hands, in my hands, he took his last breath in my arms. I knew then and I knew every day of my life after then that he died as a direct result of alcohol abuse. He died as a direct result of the damage that alcohol had done to his body. But I wasn't ready yet. And I continued to drink. And I knew that there was this place that I could go to. And by God's grace, I had dialed into an information line that we have in South Africa. And I said to them, I need a number for this rehabilitation facility. Can you patch me through? And I was. I was drunk to the extent that I didn't even know my whereabouts. But the gentleman on the, on the other end of the line said, stay on the line and I'll direct you to where, I am, where you need to be. It was a convoluted journey through Durban, but I finally got there. At the time, I was a successful lawyer. <clears throat> I had a pretty decent medical aid. And if I wanted rehabilitation, if I had wanted to choose rehabilitation for me, I would have chosen a five-star rehabilitation facility that might my medical aid would have paid for. 
But I can tell you now, friends, that if I had gone to one of those fancy rehabilitation facilities, I'd probably either still be drunk today or been dead some years back. But God in his grace sent me to a rehabilitation facility that didn't want my money. It was a free rehabilitation facility. It was rustic. And to say that the place was rustic is, is, is actually being complimentary. It, it, it had just about the bare necessities, a bed, a blanket, and you were fed a hearty meal. And that's where I ended up. The day before, I was this hotshot barrister that was doing great things. And God in his wisdom on the next morning, when it was my time to change my life, sent me into this, this basic rustic rehabilitation center. They didn't say much to me the first night when I got there. <clears throat> they said we'd talk in the morning. So I got up the next morning, my haughty self again. <clears throat> um, I had this regimental routine about the toilet and then the shower and then brushing my teeth. And I was told in no uncertain times, you will not do that. What you'll do now is you'll go and brush your teeth and come back and meet us upstairs. So I went into the shower and I had brushed my teeth and I came back. Any other time in my life, I would have said to them, piss off. Nobody tells me what to do. I decide what I'm supposed to do. I made my first surrender when I was asked to brush my teeth and come back. I made that first surrender when I was told by the person in the rehabilitation facility that as of then, I would do as I was told. And that was the turning point in my life. When I took that conscious decision to surrender to the people in the rehabilitation facility and do this thing the way I was told. And that first morning, I brushed my teeth and I came back and I did a general prayer with other people for the first time in my life. For the first time in my life, I fervently prayed in the presence and together with another human being. And it wasn't the prayers that I, I was used to. I'm a Hindu by faith. And, and I, was, I was very ritualistic in, in, in the manner in which I prayed. But this was a whole new experience for me. It was something surreal. I had heard of the Lord's Prayer and I had said the Lord's Prayer before. But it never really meant anything. But that morning, on the morning of the 18th of January 2006, my first sober day, I came to understand the Lord's Prayer. And then I came upon a new concept, which was the serenity prayer. I'd never heard the serenity prayer before, although I'd been in AA for three, uh, three months. And people were saying the serenity prayer. I never heard the serenity prayer. I didn't listen to it. But I said it for the first time on the 18th of January, 2006. And something changed in me. After we'd said the prayer, we had a, a basic breakfast of a sandwich and some tea. And here's the kicker. I was told by the supervisor that as the last person in, it was my job to clean the toilets and the showers. 
barrister the day before, toilet cleaner the next morning, any other time in my life, I'd have got in my car, buggered off, never to return. My second surrender. I picked up the pail and the mop, and I went down and I cleaned those toilets and the shower. I'd never even cleaned the toilets and the shower in my own home. But yeah, I was, and I did a damn good job of it. When I'd finished, I actually looked over the toilets and the showers and savored the work that I'd done. I was proud of myself, really proud of myself for the very first time in my life. That was the first time in my life that I had done something that gave me a sense of true, honest, humble pride that touched me to my heart. I today realize that all the other achievements, save for my marriage and the birth of my two children, were no success compared to that morning when I cleaned those toilets. And the next day, on the rotation of the duties, I was told that it was my turn to go on my knees and shine the, the wooden floors. And I did such a darn good job of that. I actually wanted to see my reflection in the floors. And I was so proud of the fact that I'd done it so well. But when I reflect back on it, what makes me even happier is that for the first time in my life, I was on my knees. And as the days progressed, I was given other tasks to do, to clean the vegetables, to cook a meal. And finally, on the last day on which I was there, I was given the opportunity to cook a meal for the other inmates that were there. And at that time, I, I would cook quite a bit. And I still cook quite a bit because it, it, it's, it's a passion for me. It's something I enjoy and it's something that helps me to relax. But in all the times before that day and all the times after that day that I've cooked, I've never enjoyed cooking a meal as much as I did that day. And I, I don't think I've ever done it with so much love and so much care and so much I don't know what else it was, but I just threw myself into, into cooking that meal. I just wanted somebody else to feel good. And when I left those rooms, I was told that my only salvation would be Alcoholics Anonymous. Because in those last few days, <coughs> before I left the rehabilitation facility, I was overcome by, by trepidation that I'd, I'd realized that I had another drunk in me, but I couldn't tell whether I had another recovery in me. And I was scared. I was scared that if I, if I went out and I drank again, it would get worse than it was when I had come in in 2006. And I needed to know what do I do from here on that, that's going to keep me from, from picking up another drink. And I was told that my only salvation was this place, Alcoholics Anonymous. And that I'd, I'd, I'd have to surrender myself to, to Alcoholics Anonymous. So I went back to that group that I'd had my, my Thanksgiving in. And for the first time, my heart was open to receiving love. Because prior to that, I, 
I held myself in such high esteem that I believed that nobody really loved me just for the sake of loving me. That they feigned to love me because they wanted something out of me. I, I had this huge ego that, that made me believe that I was this endless supply of what I could give to other people. That, that, that there was nothing that other people had to offer me. And everybody that associated with me wanted to take a piece of me. And I'd become, I'd become unlovable. I, I, I'd built a wall around me because I couldn't deal with love. And I couldn't deal with unconditional love because I had conditioned myself to believe that all love was conditioned. And when I walked back into those rooms, I had the trepidation that people were going to remember me from that, that debacle of a, um, anniversary I had, that people were going to talk about the way I shot out of there like a bat from hell. But no, everybody was happy for me. Everybody was encouraging. And they welcomed me and they said, will you be a member of this group? I didn't have a choice. Because right then I was unsure about where I was going to be accepted. So the first people that offered acceptance, I just took it. And I've been a member of that group now for 16 years and been 16 of the happiest years of my life. Some of my best friends are in my, in my group. And my journey then began. And I realized then that I couldn't do this thing on my own. Because when I started doing my step work for the first time, said to me that I had to hand this thing over to some, some higher power. Although I choose to call my higher power God, I also believe now that my higher power works through my group. Because that's where AA is. And that's where God lives. God lives in my group. And God lives in AA. And for as long as I belong to that group and I'm surrounded by those people, I'm going to be okay. But I needed to surrender to them. I couldn't tell them how things had to work. I had to allow them to tell me how things worked. And that was my fourth surrender. I had to give my life over to my sponsors. I needed for them to make a decent human being out of me. And whilst I was doing my step work, and when I got to step four and I started doing my invention, and the first attempt was blaming all the people around me. I had a bad relationship with my dad at that time because of, <clears throat> of, of things that he'd done. And I blamed my alcoholic drinking on what he'd done and I'd become extremely resentful about him. And I put all of those things down. Why did I become an alcoholic? Because at, at that point, I hadn't yet been taught about the disease concept. I believed that there was just a trigger. Some event in my life had triggered this alcoholic drinking. But then my sponsors told me about the disease concept. And then I said, hang on. I can't blame my father for all of my, my, it's a disease and I need to treat this disease. And then I made, I made my amends with my, my dad. 
and and rebuild our relationship. And yo, it's like a whole couple of rocks had been taken off my shoulders and I was, I was feeling a, a whole lot lighter and started to like this program. So this thing's doing, doing nice things for me. Let me carry on doing it. And then I went back and I did a proper step and realized what I was, what I'd done to my wife and my kids. And I went back to them and I had to surrender because there were a lot of things that I had to apologize for. And I made my amends. And I surrendered. I surrendered to God's will. Because it was God that said, if you want to stay sober, and if you want to be happy, you've got to clear out your baggage. And this is the path to which you clear out your baggage. And I surrendered to God's will and the will of my sponsors. And I went and did that. And I felt even lighter. And that's how my journey continued. And gradually, I found the God of my understanding. Not in my rituals. But I started to understand that there's this greater force that could guide me and pull me through my life. And all I needed to do was just hang on to his coattails. And that was the difficult part for me because I'm in an ego-driven profession. But we don't succeed without the ego. And the difficulty for me was to separate who I was professionally and who I was deep down in my heart. And that was, that was the difficult thing that took me many, many years in my sobriety to find because I think I'm the ultimate control freak. I have to be in control of every aspect of my life, my, my partner's life, my children's lives, and the lives of everybody around me because I had my own sense my own egotistical sense of right and wrong. I had now my own egotistical sense about how things are supposed to pan out. And I, I was what they refer to in the big book as the person that's the actor, the director, the producer, and the one that makes the player flop. That's me. I needed to be in control. And the only time I would relinquish control was when everything was messed up and I needed to blame somebody else. And then I would just pass it on to the person that I was, I was about to blame for it. And they started my journey to the God of my own understanding and the shift away from my ritual belief in God to a broader spiritual belief in a power greater than myself. And I needed to start little by little getting rid of the self-worth. And I think the biggest thing for me was that three months into my sobriety, my partner joined Eleanor. And, and truly blessed are the alcoholics who have their partners in, in Eleanor. Because through what she'd learned in her own program, they taught her that she must lay her hands off the alcoholic and sort herself out. And we would have our own AA meetings at home. And we would remind each other that we needed to take an inventory of a particular situation. And gradually, we became the best of friends. 
And she became my, my unofficial sponsor. And my kids, as they grew into their late teens, were, were the watchdogs for the both of us. And they'd remind us, you need to go back to your program, or it's your turn now, you need to read your big book, or you need to go to a meeting. And my daughter would often say to me, Dad, you're being short and you're losing your temper. When last did you attend a meeting? I think tonight you've got to go to a meeting. And my family embraced Alcoholics Anonymous. And I gradually decided that I needed to do the 12 steps all over again. I was 10, 12 years sober when I started to do the 12 steps again with a sponsor. And then I got to step 12 and I realized, hang on, I've got to do these 12 steps every single day of my life if I'm going to find any kind of joy. And that was difficult. It was difficult in practicing the 12 steps, especially the honesty bits in all of my affairs. And when I look back in retrospect, between 12 and 14 years of sobriety, there was a little bit of a distance between myself and the God of my understanding because I was still reluctant to give him a complete surrender. I was still reluctant to, to surrender my will completely to him. I didn't believe at that time that he had the capability of managing my life. Um, I needed to have my own input as well. And then as, in as much as I would, would preach to, to my friends in, in Alcoholics Anonymous and anybody that, want, that wanted to listen to me, oh, I've surrendered my life and my will to the care of God. God's in charge now. Secretly, I was trying to manipulate God. Um, if he said one, I would say, but hang on, maybe we should do one plus half and, and look at God's will for me and, and try to patch it into my own will for myself. And then there was the justification, the alcoholic justification that I carried into my sobriety, where every time something went wrong or every time I'd done something wrong or every time I'd done something that I needed to take a step 10 inventory on, I had this problem. Is it God's will? Is it my will? Ah, oh, it's God's will. I messed up because God wanted me to mess up. And, I, and, and there was this little gap between, between God and myself. But I now realize it wasn't a, a gap between God and myself. It was a gap between myself and myself. Because there were two myselves. The honest one who knew that he had to surrender. And the dishonest one that was telling the whole world, I surrendered. I'm living the AA life. I've given my life and my will over to the care of God. I don't interfere. I don't do this and I don't do that. And then came about 18 months ago, 18 months or two years ago, my sponsor and I decided that we were going to do the 12 steps together all over again. And that was the turning point in my life. I realized then that I needed to have something more. I had served, done service in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was a delegate and I, I went to conference and all of that. But I wasn't serving because I was telling lies. I was creating an impression of the way in which I was living my AA life 
which I couldn't reconcile with myself. And the stark realization for me was that I've got to be that person that I am portraying to the other people in Alcoholics Anonymous. If I want to talk that talk, I've got to walk the walk. If I'm saying that I've embraced the fellowship and the 12 steps, I have to practice those 12 steps in all of my affairs. And that's when I learned to pray properly, two years ago. When I go down on my knees and I say to my God, today I hand you my will and my life. Make me worthy and help me to bring a smile just to one other human being. I stopped asking for myself. But the most important thing is that my sponsor told me that I need to start being grateful. And I needed to verbalize my gratitude to my God every morning for the tender mercies and the blessings that I have. And lo and behold, what happens? I'm rushing to work. And by the time I say all of my thank yous, it's time for me to rush off to work and I don't have time to ask God for anything. I have to quickly say, just take care of me and help me not to drink today. And that's become my prayer for the last two years. Give my thanks. And then there's no time to ask for anything. And my wife says to me, you ask God for all the things that you want for other people. And those people will get it. And let those people ask God for all the things that you want to get and you'll get it. That's a brilliant woman that I'm married. And that made sense to me. The penny dropped. That for as long as I asked for myself, I probably wouldn't get it. But if I asked for something to you, God would probably give it to you. Because it's not a selfish prayer, it's an unselfish prayer. And I've now realized that there are so many unselfish prayers that other members of Alcoholics Anonymous and other friends of mine say for me. And that's what brings me the life that I have. Today I don't care about the material things in life. And I think it's easy to say that when, you, when you're in a position where you are comfortable. You may not be wealthy, but if you're comfortable, it's easy to say I've given up on the material things in life. I think to put it more correctly, I've stopped chasing rainbows. I found a sense of contentment in what I have. By being grateful for what I have, and by verbalizing my gratitude to God every day, I realize just how much I have and how much more I have than other people. And I've also learned that being sober is not just about not drinking. Being sober is being on a quest to improve yourself as a human being every day. We hear these things about loving yourself and I had no idea of this concept of loving myself. My concept was my ego. But today I've changed, changed that around. Because I do a step 10 inventory every day before I go to bed, I'm balancing the good and the bad about me. And I've come to a conscious realization that I can only be a true human being, a living being, if I want to improve the condition of my life, the condition of my mind, 
and the purity of my heart, just a little bit, one day at a time. Now I realize that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about. One day at a time, become a better person. Any fool can stay stopped. You told me that. And I know that. I stayed stopped for nine years and seven months. Why did I drink again? Because I hadn't filled the hole of my soul with the spiritual goodness that I needed in my life. And for as long as we keep the spiritual goodness out of our lives, the hole in the soul never gets filled. It just remains a chasm that takes all the good out of your life. It's a never-ending dark hole. It never gets full. And when I learned to shed all my bad habits one at a time, I think I'm going to get there. I'm a long, long way away from being a humble human being. Um, I still carry a lot of baggage, but I'm working on it every day. I'm consciously working the 12 steps and making an effort to be a better human being one day at a time. As an alcoholic, I'm not a normal human being. I'm a slow learner. I realize that. And my journey to perfection is going to be a lifelong journey. And the extent to which I have walked towards that perfection, only you can be the judge of on the day on which you say goodbye to me when I go to the meeting up above. I'm grateful to be an alcoholic, but I'm even more grateful to belong to this fellowship that I call Alcoholics Anonymous, the Fellowship of Love. I'm grateful for the life I have today. I'm grateful that Alcoholics Anonymous has given me back my family, which is now a happy family, a functioning family. I'm grateful to Alcoholics Anonymous for introducing me to the God of my understanding. For the lessons I've learned on what a spiritual life is all about, and what the value of the spiritual life is. And I can carry on for another two hours telling you how grateful I am and what I'm grateful about. But suffice to say, without you, I can no longer survive. I owe you all my life. In this birth and in my next birth, for what I've enjoyed and the life I have today, may God bless you all. And I pray that you'll continue to give me your support and your love and keep me sober. God bless and thank you for having me. Jay, wow, that was a um, special share for me. Um,